Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. So we'll take a look at the front page of the Gazette today. We have one, two big stories. First headline, a legacy pavilion opens at golf course. Second, Mason City celebrates Black history and the life of MLK. So we'll start with the big story on the front. It shows a photo of uh, the new Legacy Pavilion, and it shows a couple of tables and chairs with windows um, surrounding the pavilion, opening out to the outside, and light fills the space. It says the space is designed for both daily enjoyment and events of all kinds. And the story reads, Construction Complete on Crown Jewel of Legacy Golf Course. The Legacy Golf Course on the 19 in Mason City recently completed construction of its crown jewel, the Legacy Pavilion. Quote, the vision came from Joe Pritchard, said club manager Isaac Friends. He brought the original design and it was tweaked slightly by the architect, but what you see is how he envisioned it. The south wall of the building is a series of ceiling height windows, letting in the natural light from the course. The area is bright and spacious and features dining tables, a seating area, and a bar. A full-service kitchen is also housed within the pavilion. The event space holds 225 for banquet seating and up to 365 for assemblies and includes a 15-foot video wall offering event planners a digital display ideal for wedding photos or corporate gatherings. Not long after the Pritchard family purchased the Mason City Country Club in 2022, demolition of the club's deteriorating structures began. The Pritchard family made a statement in November announcing the event center's construction. We hope to have corporate outings here, weddings here, and small group outings, really anything, friends told the Globe Gazette. The new name, Legacy Golf Course at the 19, is a reference to the family's history with the facility, including Bill Pritchard's history as a caddy at Mason City Country Club decades ago, the Pritchard companies stated in a press release. And the quote continues, the legacy name refers to this history, as well as the new legacy being created through a vast number of improvements planned, underway, and completed, unquote. The semi-private course itself was designed in 1915 by Tom Bendelow, a Scotsman commissioned by A.G. Spaulding to design golf courses all over the United States. The Legacy Golf Course on the 19 is located at 3331 19th Street Southwest in Mason City. The golf season generally runs from April to November, weather permitting, and you can learn more on the webs- on their website at Legacy at 19.com. The next story on the front page shows a photo of a hymnal open to the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is sometimes referred to as the Black National Anthem. The song was written by the Johnson Brothers in 1900. And the copy reads, Mason City Celebrates Black History and the Life of MLK. North Iowans gathered together Monday evening at the First Congregational Church of Christ in Mason City to celebrate black history and to look back on the life of Martin Luther King Jr. The evening program was created to celebrate Mason City's living history makers as well as those who paved the way for new generations. 
Reverend Leanne Clausen de Montes welcomed the group, and Deacon Reagan Banks gave a short presentation on the restoration efforts underway at the St. John the Baptist Church, which is located on 6th Street Southwest. Attendees held a moment of silence for Mason City native Dr. Deborah Turner, an esteemed doctor and activist who died earlier this month. At the time of her death, Turner sat as the national president of the League of Women Voters. The reverent evening was punctuated with song. Attendee Marilyn Brown sang an a cappella version of Amazing Grace, with the crowd joining in. Then, Brown and local artist Yvonne Willis, Willis rather, each sang for those who had gathered. Reverend Metric Giles is the son of Reverend Robert Giles, who served St. John Baptist Church in the 1950s. He and his family greeted and thanked the attendees for coming. I'm so glad to see the people who are looking to restore and rebuild John, St. John Baptist. I have so many memories of riding bikes with my cousins here in North Iowa, Giles said. Giles lived in Mason City for part of his childhood, attending Grant Elementary School. Banks and his wife Annette recited King's famed I Have a Dream speech, highlighting the assassinated activist's vision for the future. Tavian Banks, grandson of Reagan and Annette Banks, received a commemorative plaque presented by Clausen de Montes for having been voted homecoming king at Mason City High School in 2021. And turning the page, registration open at Mason City Schools for 2024-25. Online registration for the 2024-25 school year is now open at Mason City Community School District. Online registration must be completed by every student in grades transitional kindergarten through 12th grade. Children who turn five years old on or before September 15 are eligible for kindergarten. Steps to register students depend on whether the child is a returning student or a new student to the district. Links for returning and new student registration can be found at the district's website. Students five years old but not quite ready for kindergarten can apply for a place in two sections of transitional kindergarten for the school year. Space is limited, so there will be criteria to determine placement, including date of birth, teacher recommendation, previous school experience, and parent recommendation. These classrooms will be located at Hoover Elementary and Jefferson Elementary. All Mason City School District students are eligible to attend these classrooms. The TK program will follow the district's K-4 schedule and school day. Placement in the district's four-year-old preschool program is on a first-come, first-served basis, and a registration and busing form can be filled out online. Classes begin August 26th and conclude on May 29, 2025. Commencement for the class of 2025 will take place June 1st, 2025. Next story from Tom Barton of the Gazette. Iowa House passes bill to block code from tracking gun store buys. Iowa House Republicans advanced a bill Tuesday to prohibit the use of a planned merchant code for credit card transactions at gun retailers meant to detect suspicious firearms and ammunition sales. House File 2464 would prevent banks and credit card companies from using a merchant code that would differentiate a gun shop from a general merchandise or sporting goods store. It would also prohibit banks and credit card companies 
from declining a transaction based solely on a firearms code attached to the store. And it would bar state and local governmental agencies from keeping a record or registry of privately owned firearms, except for records kept during the regular course of a criminal investigation, a criminal prosecution, any court case, or as otherwise required by law. The bill was amended to codify current standard practices of financial institutions to provide consumer protections, including to help detect and deter illegal or suspicious activities, and also prevent fraud by alerting customers of a suspicious purchase on their bank card or credit card. Representative Phil Thompson, Republican of Boone, chair of the House Public Safety Committee, said the bill aims to prevent financial institutions from creating a de facto gun registry. Merchant category codes are used to classify different types of businesses by the types of goods and services sold. The U.S. Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has sent guidance to financial institutions, encouraging them to use new merchant category codes that would help them monitor and report suspicious activity connected to illegal firearms trafficking, money laundering proceeds from trafficking in firearms or other criminal activity. Major credit card companies are moving to make a merchant code available for firearms and ammunition retailers to comply with the new California law that will allow banks to potentially track suspicious gun purchases and report them to law enforcement. Visa, MasterCard, and American Express had paused the implementation of the new code because some Republican-led states are working to block its enactment. Supporters of the bill say the code is an infringement on privacy and Second Amendment rights. Quote, the problem is this is a huge violation of financial privacy, and this is just a way to, or just a back way rather, to keep a list of privately owned firearms, Thompson said. Gun safety advocates say the code, approved by an international organization in 2022, can be used as a tool to help banks and financial institutions report suspicious gun purchasing activity to law enforcement, consistent with their existing obligations to report suspicious activity related to terrorism financing and other illicit activities. Quote, it appears that there's a problem, but no problem can be defined, said Representative David Jacoby, a Democrat of Coralville. There's a paranoia about a registry, and there's also an accusation for our financial institutions providing coding to the private sector and the government, which is not happening at the current time. We already allow criminal investigations where needed when there's criminal prosecutions or investigations. But I did ask the question, does this do any, does this bill rather do anything to prevent school shootings? And it does not. And turning to page three, Iowa Senate bill would make evictions easier. Critics say it will create housing instability and hurt tenant protections. This is from the Globe Gazette. Senate Republicans advanced a bill Wednesday with the intent to amend it later that would make it easier for landlords to evict tenants with a shorter timeline. Representatives with the Home Builders Association of Iowa, Greater Iowa Apartment Association, and Iowa Manufactured Housing Association said the bill aims to standardize and clarify landlord-tenant laws, particularly about notice requirements and unlawful lease provisions, and provide flexibility for landlords and tenants to work out payment plans. 
critics said Senate Study Bill 3102 would credit more housing instability, or excuse me, would create more housing instability and weaken tenant protections at a time of rising rents and eviction filings. Senator Dan Dawson, Republican of Council Bluffs, highlighted the need to address an ambiguous area of state law that's created perceived roadblocks or impediments, quote, into the service Iowa landlords provide, quote, operating off of old case law with Iowa magistrates left to interpret it isn't the best way to go about providing clarity in the law, he said. Lisa Davis Cook from the Iowa Association for Justice expressed concerns about the bill, including the change in notice provision and the potential for landlords to enforce illegal provisions in leases. The organization, which represents Iowa trial lawyers, is registered opposed to the bill, along with Common Good Iowa. Under current law, landlords must serve a three-day notice for non-payment of rent and their intent to terminate the rental agreement in three days if the rent is not paid. If the tenant does not pay the rent, the landlord may file an eviction case. Under current law, any period ending on a weekend or a holiday is automatically extended to the next full business day. The bill would change that to allow the last day to fall on a Saturday, Sunday, or federal holiday. Doing so would put tenants in a bind, shorting the timeline for tenants to respond if the notice is served late on a Friday before a three-day holiday weekend, Davis Cook said. Andy Conlon, a lobbyist representing the Iowa Manufactured Housing Association, said the change aims to fix a, quote, misinterpretation by Iowa magistrates that has, quote, created essentially new notice requirements and thrown out evictions as a result, unquote. The bill would also allow landlords to include otherwise prohibited provisions in rental agreements as long as they aren't, quote, enforced, and it extends the timeline for peaceable possession of a property to 90 days before barring eviction and changes the definition of rent to include utilities, late fees, and other payments made by the tenant to the landlord under the agreement that may be the basis for eviction, not just the base rent. SSB 3102 would allow landlords to use prohibited rental agreements so long as they don't actually enforce the prohibited provisions. Under current law, a landlord using a rental agreement known to be prohibited grants a tenant an action to recover damages. Courts would have to determine at what point a provision has been enforced, as that is not defined in the code, said Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, a Democrat of Dubuque, and other opponents. Quote, not everybody knows landlord-tenant law. A tenant may see a provision in a lease and not realize that it's illegal, Davis Cook said, and then their landlord enforces it and they have no idea that it shouldn't be enforced in the first place. Conlon said the provision is meant to protect landlords from lawsuits for unenforceable provisions in landlord-tenant agreements due to recent changes in law. He said multifamily rental property owners have been subject to class action lawsuits in other states shortly after purchasing the property because the previous owner had outdated provisions in the lease that had not been revised. And typically those happen not because landlords are malicious in any way, but because the law changes and they haven't gotten around to updating their leases or 
They weren't aware of the law change, Conlon said. The legislation would extend peaceable possession requirements from 30 days to 90 days. Peaceful possession refers to the legal right of a person to occupy and use a piece of property without interference or challenge. Davis Cook said 30 days is just long enough for a landlord to provide notice, file eviction, and receive judgment from the court. Extending it would allow landlords to make repeated attempts or to pile up insurmountable bills before bringing an eviction action. Quote, meaning that a landlord could sit on an eviction for up to 90 days before they actually take action on it, she said. So it will cause a lot of confusion for tenants who may get a notice, may get caught up on rent, but there's still that opportunity for the landlord to go out 90 days and still evict them, is my understanding, unquote. Conlon argued the bill gives landlords opportunity to work with tenants to come up with some type of rental payment agreement. Quote, we think this gives people, both the landlords and the tenants, more flexibility to work out some type of payment plan without the landlord losing the ability to collect the rent that they're owed, he said. The bill redefines rent to allow landlords to evict tenants for non-payment of utilities, late fees, administrative fees, or other fees intended to be paid to the landlord. Quote, it would allow landlords, if there is money owed beyond base rent, to collect those fees from their tenant through the eviction process if it comes to that, Conlon said. And that should make it easier for the landlord to be whole and therefore make the city to be whole for unpaid municipal utility bills for water, sewer, garbage, and other services. Senator Mike Klimish, Klimash, rather, Republican of Spillville, who chaired the subcommittee hearing, said, quote, it's almost an impossible for cities to collect unpaid utilities from renters unless they go after the property owner. The rub is that the property owner didn't actually accrue the expenses. The tenant accrued the expenses, Klemesh said. The Reverend Lizzie Gilman, an Episcopal priest in Des Moines, shared her experience witnessing evictions in her neighborhood and worried about the, quote, unintended consequences of the bill. I've counseled people who've come into the church during evictions simply because their landlords don't understand the laws, Gilman said. I read the law myself, and as someone who is just a witness to all this activity that happens frequently in our neighborhood, I myself do not know if I could adequately talk to my neighbors about this law. Matt Chapman, a mobile home resident and activist from Waukee, urged the subcommittee to consider the impact of the bill consider the impact of the bill that it would have on vulnerable Iowans on fixed incomes who are elderly and disabled that have seen rents double in the last five years under out-of-state mobile home park owners. Quote, I would ask you to take a really clear eye and sober view of what's happening in these parks and why we're letting out-of-state entities abuse vulnerable Iowans, Chapman said. We keep passing bill after bill after bill for them, it's making it easier and easier for them to hurt Iowans, unquote. Klemesh said the bill needs work, but voted with Dawson to advance it to continue the conversation. The bill now heads to the full Senate Ways and Means Committee. Our next story, Breeder Recommended to Downsize. This is from the Iowa Capital Dispatch. State regulators are recommending that an Iowa breeder downsize her operation in the wake of several of her dogs dying due to the cold. In December, a federal inspector from the U.S. Department of Agriculture visited a dog breeding kennel 
located in the Van Buren County town of Cantrill. The business operates on property owned by Steve Cruz, one of Iowa's larger dog breeders, but it's operating under a license held by Juanita Swedland, that's S-W-E-D-L-U-N-D. The federal inspector reported that in November, a French bulldog named Bethany gave birth to four puppies, three of which were found dead within days. Swedland allegedly indicated, quote, the puppies must have gotten too cold and passed away, unquote, the inspector reported. Three other puppies, born to a Rottweiler, were also found dead at the kennel, with Swedland allegedly telling inspectors, quote, they must have gotten too cold and died, unquote. In addition, a puppy born to Megan, a sheepdog, had to be euthanized after a dog in a nearby enclosure chewed through the wall into the puppy's enclosure and tore the flesh from one leg, leaving the bone exposed. A short time later, a sheepdog puppy from the same litter was determined to be missing. Quote, the licensee states, they did find a single bone and assumed Megan ate her puppy, unquote, the inspector reported. At the time, inspectors indicated they'd be returning to the business on February 1st to conduct a follow-up inspection. State records indicate that an Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship inspector visited the facility on February 1st and, despite the advance notice, found additional violations related to inadequate veterinary care. A male pug had some form of unspecified discharge from both eyes. A French bulldog had sores on its neck and around one eye. A dog named Snowball had a chronic history of skin issues. Other dogs had suspected ear infections or sores between their toes, and a majority of the dogs had long nails that needed trimming. Several other dogs were noted to have matted hair. The IDALS inspector wrote in her report, quote, discuss the need to go down in dog numbers to adequately care for the dogs on property. Licensee indicated some dogs will be rehomed in the very near future. Additional personnel should be attain, obtained or dog numbers should be decreased. Continued noncompliance may result in IDALS limiting the number of dogs allowed in housing facility, unquote. State and federal records indicate the number of dogs at Swedland's kennel has actually increased from 157 dogs and puppies at the time of the December 21, 2023 inspection to 159 dogs and puppies on February 1. Representatives of the Iowa-based animal welfare organization called Bailing Out Benji have filed a complaint about Swedland's operations with the Van Buren County Sheriff and County Attorney. To date, no charges have been filed in the case. Our next story, Home for Adults with Autism Fined for Numerous Violations. A Central Iowa Care Facility for Adults with Autism has been cited by the state for 18 regulatory violations and fined $5,000. Balance Autism, a nonprofit agency that runs a 24-resident intermediate care facility in Pleasant Hill, was inspected by the state in January. At that time, the inspectors determined residents of the facility had been placed in immediate jeopardy based on an alleged failure to provide prompt medical assessments and treatments. That violation was tied to an incident in which there was a delay in treating a client who had fallen twice in quick succession and sustained facial injuries that resulted in his hospitalization. 
The facility was also cited for medication errors, drug storage violations, inoperable door alarms, inadequate staff training, staff treatment of clients, failure to implement policies to prevent abuse, failure to ensure client privacy, failure to inform guardians of significant changes in client's condition, failure to investigate all alleged care violations, and several violations related to food and nutrition services. Balance Autism CEO Steve Muller said Tuesday that the organization takes client safety seriously, adding that, quote, we appreciate the state's insights and we're working to improve the quality of services. Our history of serving people with autism in Iowa demonstrates that this was an unusual situation, and yet we are working to resolve the concerns the state brought to our attention. According to state records, one inspector watched during the January visit as a client, uh, as a client allegedly pulled another client by his shirt collar to the back door of a residence and then pulled the man's head to the floor, leaving an abrasion on the victim's head. According to the inspector, two of the facility's direct support professionals, quote, were present at the time and had the client, clients rather, in their direct eyesight, unquote, but did not intervene and did not write up the required report of the incident. Inspectors also made note of an incident involving a 72-year-old male client who fell on November 28th, resulting in bleeding lacerations to his head. Staffers told inspectors that surveillance video of the incident showed the man falling and then, within minutes, being assisted to a shower chair to be cleaned up by a staff member. The man then fell a second time, striking his head on a door frame. More than four hours passed before a nurse arrived to assess that client. She later told inspectors that she found the man in bed with, quote, blood on his hands and face, with oozing wounds, plus bruising and swelling around his eyes. The surveillance video allegedly captured the nurse wiping blood from the man's face as she escorted him out of the building for transport to a hospital where the man was admitted to the intensive care unit with a possible brain bleed. According to the state inspectors, the video was not made available to them during their 18-day investigation. Muller explained Tuesday that the facility has a policy of sharing such videos only in response to a subpoena. The investigators, or excuse me, the inspectors rather, also reported that the Balance Autism staff did not appear to be providing all residents with their scheduled activities. One client was to be performing vocational work or be engaged in cleaning, exercise, laundry, meal prep, and or special outings. While inspectors watched, however, the man spent hours in bed or sitting at a table spinning plastic rings. Inspectors also observed that several bathrooms for clients had no toilet paper, hand soap, or paper towels, and that four residents' beds were in a state of disrepair with sagging, stained, and ripped mattresses. One resident's bed had a torn mattress protector, but no sheets. The facility was also cited for failing to provide clients with the well-balanced diets described in the written menus. Lunch on January 8th, for example, was supposed to be turkey ranch wraps, diced carrots, fresh orange slices, and skim milk. Surveillance allegedly showed residents being served plain hamburger patties with ketchup and one slice of bread. Dinner that day was supposed to be breaded chicken patties, yellow pepper strips, fat-free dip, a crescent roll, diced peaches, and skim milk. 
but the actual dinner, inspectors say, consisted of hamburger patties on wheat bread, corn, and canned pears. The $5,000 fine includes a $500 penalty for failing to report a pattern of client-to-client -client aggression that resulted in injuries. One of the incidents tied to that fine involved a female client who was lying in bed when one of her housemates ran up to her, pulled her hair, and bit her on the forehead. During Balance Autism's 2022 annual inspection, the facility was cited for three violations. In 2021, it was cited for 17. Balance Autism is a nonprofit entity that, according to tax records, made $3.1 million after expenses in the 2022 fiscal year. At that time, the organization's highest paid staffers were Muller, whose compensation totaled $296,028, and Chief Financial Officer Grant Johnson, whose compensation totaled $193,164. And now turning to obituaries, Betty Elizabeth Kolb, age 98, passed away February 19 at the Good Shepherd Health Center in Mason City. Funeral service, February 29, 10.30 a.m. at the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel in Mason City. Burial will be at the Clear Lake Cemetery, and a visitation will take place February 28th from 5 to 7 at the funeral home. And Patrick Harbacek um, passed away February 17th. It says a celebration of life will be held at the Bayview Freeborn Funeral Home in Albert Lee, Minnesota, Saturday, February 24, from 10 to noon. And our final obit today, Edward J., I'm going to say Socheck, it's S-O-U-C-E-K. Mass for Edward will be uh, Wednesday, February 28th, 10.30 a.m. at the Holy Name Catholic Church in Rockford, Iowa. Burial, St. Patrick's Catholic Cemetery in Doherty. Rosary, 4.30 p.m., visitation 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 27th at St. Pat's in Doherty, Iowa. Arrangements, the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel. And we do have an opinion page today. There's a cartoon, and it shows um, actually a line of people carrying caskets. And the line kind of goes off into infinity. And there are thought bubbles um, above each group carrying a casket. The title is America's Parade. And one of the thought bubbles said, celebrated the Super Bowl. The next casket, the thought bubble says, went to school. The third says, prayed in a synagogue, went shopping, saw a concert, went to work, went to college. And then in the corner, there's a, um, a, a little drawing of Uncle Sam and his thought bubble says it's semi-automatic. And here's an opinion piece written by Jonah Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. The title is No, Trump Does Not Equal Russian Dissident Navalny. Alexei Navalny didn't simply die. He wasn't just murdered. He was tortured to death. It didn't happen on the rack or mid-beating, but Vladimir Putin, who had tried to eliminate him earlier, slowly killed Navalny all the same. 
Putin sent the Russian dissident and anti-corruption activist to the Gulag with the aim of grinding him down with hard labor, isolation, hunger, and shabby medical care until he died. Russia's claims that he died from, quote, sudden death syndrome, even if true, change nothing, given that being poisoned with a Soviet-era nerve agent in 2020 and thrown into an Arctic labor camp in 2023 presumably increases one's chances of falling prey to sudden death syndrome. The question of whether the timing of Navalny's death was deliberate matters geopolitically, but not morally. If Putin ordered Navalny's death on Friday, it might shed light on his state of mind. Was Putin sending a message in advance of next month's, quote, election in Russia? Was Putin buoyed by his recent military successes in Ukraine or his related political victories in the U.S. Congress? Or was he, as some Russian propagandists have speculated, somehow motivated by the insipid comments of Tucker Carlson in a few days earlier? On his way back from interviewing Putin and celebrating Russia's superiority to America in a series of embarrassing videos about Moscow supermarkets and subways, Carlson appeared at a forum in Dubai. Asked why he hadn't questioned Putin about the then-still-alive Navalny, Carlson shrugged and said, quote, Every leader kills people. Some kill more than others. Leadership requires killing people, unquote. No doubt Putin agrees. What Navalny's death and life say about Putin's Russia should be obvious to anyone who doesn't believe that leadership requires killing. What it says about the moral rot on parts of the American right is another matter. For numerous right-wing and Republican figures, the real lesson of Navalny's killing is that Navalny equals Trump, in the words of Trump-pardoned writer Dinesh D'Souza. Quote, the plan of the Biden regime and the Democrats is to ensure their leading political opponent dies in prison. There's no real difference between the two cases, unquote. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich concurred. Navalny's death is, quote, a brutal reminder that jailing your political opponents is inhumane and a violation of every principle of a free society. Watch the Biden administration speak out against Putin and his jailing of his leading political opponent, while Democrats in four different jurisdictions try to turn President Trump into an American Navalny, unquote. On Monday, Trump involved the comparison, or excuse me, invoked the comparison on social media. His first mention of Navalny's name wasn't to condemn his death or Putin's role in it, but to cast himself as an American Navalny. Quote, the sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country, unquote he declared before spewing the usual self-serving grievances. Condemning such false moral equivalence was once central to American conservatism. When someone told National Review founder William F. Buckley that the U.S. and USSR were the same because they both spend a lot on the military, he replied, quote, that's like saying that the man who pushed old ladies out of the way of an incoming bus is like the man who pushes old ladies into the way of an incoming bus. Both push old ladies around, unquote. Trump is not an innocent anti-corruption crusader brutalized and murdered for championing democracy and the rule of law. Plausible criticisms of the legal cases against Trump are ample. But even if you agree with all of them, and I don't, 
The notion that Joe Biden is the moral equivalent of Putin is a slander, not merely of Biden, but of America itself. Indeed, one reason we know it's not true. Publicly criticizing Putin's treatment of Navalny can land you in a Russian cell. Criticizing Biden's alleged treatment of Trump can land you in a Fox News studio. And that was from Jonah Goldberg of thedispatch.com. And that's way past the half point of the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. And now I'll turn on over to the Fort Dodge Messenger for today. And on the front page of today's Messenger, the big story, Become a Fraud Fighter. And then we have two other stories. State Auditor Releases Report on Webster County and Pocahontas County Foundation Awards $124,040 to 16 projects and New Iowa Central Facility Gets Federal Boost. So we'll start with the top story, Become a Fraud Fighter, How to Stop and How to Spot, Stop, and Avoid Scams. You've seen headlines like, Iowan loses thousands of dollars in a scam. Now's the time to protect yourself from these financial crimes, which are on the rise. Quote, everyone, regardless of age, is a potential victim of theft or other fraud, swindles or scams, said Barb Wallen, that's W-O-L-L-A-N, who is a human services slash family well-being specialist with Iowa State University Extension. It's a growing problem, she says. Iowans lost nearly $30 million due to fraud in 2022, according to the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. Wallen presented the workshop called Spot, Stop, and Avoid Scams at the Pocahontas County Extension Office recently after a bank in Pocahontas reported an uptick of fraud incidents throughout the county. Older Americans are disproportionately victimized, Wallen noted, because scammers often target seniors. Quote, older adults tend to have more assets and may be more trusting, she said. Also, they may not feel competent with technology. They may be isolated, and they may be easier to fool if they have dementia or other cognitive challenges. Older adults may also fear outliving their money, so the chance to get more money might appeal to them, Wallen added. Scammers use a wide variety of methods to mislead, deceive, and defraud, including in-person scams, the mail, computer and email, and the telephone. From 2013 to 2017, reported incidents of financial exploitation of older adults quadrupled, and the trend has not slowed down. Quote, people ages 70 to 79 in that 2013-2017 study lost $43,000 on average from scams. If the victim knew their perpetrator, the loss was even larger, averaging about $50,000. And those are just the reported incidents, Wallen noted. Many of these crimes go unreported because the victims feel embarrassed that they fell for the scam. They may also fear retaliation from the perpetrator, so they stay quiet. In addition, victims may also start questioning their ability to handle their own financial affairs if they get scammed. While plenty of scams abound, watch for these red flags that are common to many types of fraud. And here's a bullet list. First bullet, the promise of getting something for nothing. 
pressure to act now since this is a limited opportunity. High pressure sales tactics, such as after a storm, for example, a scammer might approach you about installing a new roof, but the person might pressure you to sign up by 9 p.m. today. That's a warning sign of a potential scam. The next bullet, your personal information is required. Next bullet, money transfers are required. Next bullet, details of the de deal are vague and confusing. And next bullet, the offer comes from an unsolicited contact, meaning that you did not reach out to the person uh, who is contacting you. Watch for signs of trouble. The top three scams in Iowa include, number one, imposter scams, including the grandchild scam. With this extortion technique, scammers contact potential victims and pretend to be that person's relative, almost always a grandchild. The scammer, who might reach out via phone, text, message, or email, says he or she has been arrested after being involved in a car accident or other problem in Mexico or some other location. The quote-unquote grandchild asks for a large sum of money to ensure his or her release. As of 2018, this was the most camp common scam in Iowa, said Wallen, who noted that one in five Iowans has lost money through an imposter scam. To protect yourself, don't be afraid to ask questions. Ask the caller who is posing as your grandchild or relative to tell you when your loved one's birthday is. Also, stop communicating with the person if you think you're being scammed. Don't worry about being rude, just hang up the phone. Then report the incident at ftc.gov slash imposters. Next one, identity theft. Identity theft happens when someone uses your personal or financial information without your permission. Not only can thieves steal your money, but identity theft can damage your credit, which could hurt your ability to get a loan or rent an apartment. To steal your identity, scammers can, and then here's a bullet list, steal your wallet or purse to get ID, credit cards, or bank cards. Next, go through your trash to retrieve bank statements or tax documents. Next, steal your mail. Next, install skimmers at ATM machines, cash registers, and fuel pumps to digitally steal information from your bank card. Next, get personal information from your phone or computer when you're using public Wi-Fi. Next, use phishing to get information from you through fraudulent email, texts, or phone calls. Next, hack computer networks and databases. Next, look through your social media accounts to find identifying information in posts or photos, or ask for personal information in online quizzes and surveys. You may not know immediately that a thief has stolen your identity. Beware of bills for items you did not buy, debt collection calls for accounts you did not open, information on your credit report for accounts you did not open, denials of loan applications, and mail that stops coming to or is missing from your mailbox. If you're a victim of identity theft, contact the companies involved, such as your credit card company or bank. Also, file a report with the FTC at identitytheft.gov. Be sure to file a police report too. Even if the police cannot help, they can give you a police report, which you may need to take the next steps. In addition, contact the major credit bureaus, including Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Review and or dispute credit reports. Ask them to freeze your credit as well. To protect your identity, 
Guard your social security number. Use a shredder to dispose of documents like bank statements and pa tax paperwork. Use strong passwords with a combination of letters, numbers, and symbols to protect your online accounts. Check your financial statements monthly to watch for irregularities and also check your credit reports regularly. Fraud that's conducted via telephone or online. This can take many forms, including, quote, tech support scammers who claim you have a serious problem with your computer, like a virus. They want you to pay for tech support services that you don't need, fix a problem that doesn't exist. They often ask you to pay by wiring money, putting money on a gift card, or using cryptocurrency or a money transfer app because they know those types of payments can be hard to reverse. And how you can fight back. Here are four tips to help avoid all these types of scams. Number one, check out the offer before you act and ask questions. Scammers play on your fear and their goal is to get you to act quickly. Don't fall for it. Number two, don't make any financial payments. Number three, if you've already sent money, contact the company you used to send the money. Number four, report the fraud. Wallen recommends the Iowa Concern Hotline, which is a free service that offers 24-7 phone support and has a lawyer on staff. They can help you learn about your rights and responsibilities regarding financial fraud. And their number at the Iowa Concern Hotline is one 800 447-1985. That's 1-800-447-1985. When you present the facts about financial fraud logically, it all seems obvious, Wallen said. When a potential scam is in progress, however, it's not so obvious. Nearly everyone knows someone who has been scammed. Use these fraud fighting tools to help protect yourself. Our next story from the Fort Dodge Messenger State Auditor Releases Report on Webster County. This is from Bill Shea. Iowa Auditor of State Rob Sand has released an audit of the Webster County government for the fiscal year that ended June 30, 2022. During that fiscal year, county's revenue was $48,216,563. This is a 16.3% increase from the previous fiscal year. The state report attributed the increase to income from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The audit found that county government expenditures for that fiscal year were $35,500,418. That's an 8.9% increase. The auditor's report did not list any significant problems. It did include seven findings for which the state auditors recommended improvements. These findings related to segregating the duties of employees who handle money, recording payables and capital assets, and tax increment financing certifications. I think overall we did okay, said Webster County Auditor Doreen Pliner. For a lot of these findings, we just don't have the ability to do it the way they want us to, she added. The budget is tight right now, so there's no way we're going to be adding more people, she said. Another story from the front page. New Iowa Central facility gets federal boost. Dateline Storm Lake. A $2 million loan from the federal government will help to finance the Iowa Central Community College Career Academy building nearing completion in Storm Lake. We're really excited, said college president Jesse Ulrich, 
Wednesday afternoon, it's going to be a great partnership between the college, the communities, and the businesses there. The $10 million facility on the north side of Storm Lake is scheduled to open this fall. Among other things, it will be a center for training healthcare workers, such as certified nursing assistants. There will be four nursing labs in the building, English language learner classes and classes for non-traditional students working to earn their high school diplomas will also be held there. This is a huge workforce training benefit, Ulrich said of the new facility. The financial assistance announced this week comes from the United States Department of Agriculture Rural Development Program. Specifically, the money will come from the Rural Economic Development Loan and Grant Program. Because of the way the federal program is structured, the money is not coming directly to the college. Instead, it's going to the Iowa Lakes Electric Cooperative, which will then pass it on to Iowa Central. Ulrich said getting this loan allows the college to defer borrowing from other sources uh, at high interest rates. Construction of the new Storm Lake facility began in March of 2023. Jensen Builders Limited of Fort Dodge is the general contractor. Another story from the front page, Pocahontas County Foundation awards $124,040 to 16 projects. The Pocahontas County Foundation Board of Directors recently announced that 16 community projects throughout the county were awarded a total of $124,040 in 2024. Two high-impact grant awards were selected this year. The Lawrence Pool Committee received $20,000 for pool amenities for the new swimming pool complex under construction in Sportsman Park, Sportsman's Park. The Fonda Hometown Pride Committee received $22,000 for new playground equipment in School Park. The Pocahontas County Foundation's mission is to foster charitable giving and to strengthen and support nonprofit organizations throughout the county for the benefit of all residents in Pocahontas County. Um, other awards included $3,000 to the American Legion Post 19 for a char broiler, $9,982 to the Fonda Fire Department to upgrade a truck. $9,700 to the Gilmore City for Sunset Park Pavilion, $4,531 for outdoor music equipment for the Havelock Hometown Pride Organization, $4,549.50 to the Iowa State University Extension for an interactive smart TV, $5,149 to Lawrence Care Center for a blanket warmer, $4,200 to the Lawrence Fire Department for pagers, $2,770 to the Lawrence Food Pantry for food freezers, $3,593 to the Lawrence Swim Team for a swim timing system, $4,409.64 to the Pocahontas County Library Association for STEM kits, $5,000 to the Pocahontas Fire Department for rescue stabilization struts, $3,832.50 to the Pocahontas Rotary Club for an adult bench swing, $5,750 to the Rialto Theater for a soundboard for live performances, $7,230 
to the Rolf Hometown Pride Organization for handicapped doors to the community center, $913.86 to the Rolf Public Library for STEAM projects, and $7,040 to the Verena Hometown Pride Organization for sidewalks at the park. And here's a little news in brief from Pocahontas. Three people were arrested following an early Sunday morning vehicle chase through rural areas of a handful of northern Iowa counties. Pursuit began about 4.40 a.m. when a deputy spotted a 2020 Nissan speeding on Highway 4, according to the Pocahontas County Sheriff's Office. When the deputy tried to stop the vehicle, its driver took off with speeds of up to 100 miles an hour. Pursuit continued onto gravel roads where speeds reached 90 miles an hour. The vehicle failed to stop at numerous stop signs, went into the opposing lane of traffic, and traveled without any lights on. A Pocahontas, Pocahontas County deputy did a pursuit intervention technique at the intersection of 330th Avenue and 470th in Clay County, which brought the vehicle to a stop. The driver, Braulio Hernandez Jr., age 30, of Ames, charged with driving while barred, eluding second or subsequent offense, and numerous traffic violations. Two passengers in the vehicle were Denver Crumpton, age 34, of Ruthven, and Haley Byerly, age 28, of Spencer. They were arrested on outstanding warrants, the sheriff's office reported. The details of the, those warrants were not released. Uh, deputy sheriffs from Buena Vista, Clay, and Palo Alto counties, po Pocahontas Police and Lawrence Police, assisted the Pocahontas County Sheriff's Office. And a couple obituaries, Janet Gunderson, services will be held at a later date. Donna Capsel passed away on uh, February 28th, 2023. Visitation Monday the 26th from 6 to 8. Um, the memorial service Tuesday the 27th, 1 p.m. Both will take place at the Bowman Funeral Home. And Kevin Capsel uh, passed away February 14, 2024. Uh, visitation same times, um, Monday the 26th from 6 to 8, and a memorial service Tuesday the 27th at 1 p.m., both happening at the Bowman Funeral Home. And we've burned up all our time for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. You've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. We're so glad to have you listening. I'm Mary Francis. Have a great day.
Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.